This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10 will introduce the study this morning. You'll see the scripture typed out in the uh, top, if it's also on the back side as well. But uh, Peter says, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Whoever Peter's writing to here are the chosen people of God. That's really what he tells them here. They are a chosen generation. And he tells them that in time past they were not a people, but he said, ye are now the people of God. In, in time past you had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. There are many people today who believe that God's chosen people are in the Middle East, that they're the nation Israel over there. And a lot of people are confused about that. I want us to understand right up front, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm not against Israel. They are a great ally to America. They are, have been for years the only democracy in the Middle East. And our country has worked with them. I'm not opposed to that. I have, I have no problems. I, I, I have nothing against Mr. Netanyahu. I, I like him as a, as a, loot, as a leader. And uh, so what I've got to say about the chosen people of God is not out of prejudice against the modern day Israel or anything like that. So let's understand that. But those people in the Middle East are not God's chosen people today. I will say that truthfully and emphatically, they are not. It's the group that Peter's referring to in this opening scripture, and we, we want to identify them. You know, when you look at the Bible, uh, the whole theme of the Bible is simply Jesus Christ. It is from start to finish. And you start reading a Jesus back in the very, very third chapter of Genesis when he's described there as the seed of the woman that'll bruise the serpent, and he's all through the Bible. And God's whole plan throughout the whole Bible was to create a nation of people out of Abraham and preserve that nation for centuries until such time as he could bring Abraham's seed, which is the Messiah, Jesus, out of that nation in order to bless all the nations of the earth, to take Jew and Gentile and reconcile them unto him in one body that we call the church, and to make them His chosen people, His special people, His children. This is the whole theme of the Bible. And that's the whole reason for the nation of Israel was to, was to preserve a race of people through which He could bring Jesus Christ into this world and use Him to bless all mankind. That's really the whole scheme of the Bible. And uh, so I want to show us some of that as we go through this study. Who are the chosen people of God? And Peter identifies them here in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And this is really the church. This is the children of God today. It's composed of Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus Christ and have been called out of the world through the gospel and have obeyed that gospel, obeying the Lord in baptism and being added to the church, reconciled unto God in that one body, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Those are the chosen people and that's what we'll show during the course of this study. But I want to go back now to Genesis chapter 12 with you. And if you'll look on the back of the front page, you'll see the text there typed out. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, 
and get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in all, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. If you think about the history of the Bible through here, we have the creation here on this chart. And you'll recall that uh, after very few generations, actually it was 1656 years, if you want to know the year, 1656 years from Adam the flood came. That was the year Methuselah died. Methuselah died the year of the flood. Methuselah being the oldest on record to, to ever live, 969 years. We don't know if Methuselah died naturally or in the flood, but he died the year of the flood. And it's not 1656 B.C., it's 1656 years from Adam. The flood came, and of course, God wiped out humanity for its wickedness, and that left only eight people on the earth. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And God told them to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so with eight people, again, the Lord began to populate this earth. But man congregated in one place. And he sought to make him a tower and build a tower up to heaven. And that was the Tower of Babel there after the flood. And you'll remember God had to come down and confound the languages of people in order to scatter them out across the earth as he designed the earth to, to be, that they might repopulate the, the surface of the earth and dwell therein. And that the whole earth might be full of people. That's what he wanted. And here they were congregated in one place thinking they could build a tower to heaven. So God scatters them, and here's where we get the different languages and races and different things. And then, uh, as we read there in Genesis 12, there came a point in history when man began to get wicked again. God called Abraham off to the side and separated him away from all humanity, one man. God made him there in Genesis 12 a threefold promise. You'll see it in the upper left part of your chart. He first made him a land promise. He said, get up out of your father's house and come to a land that I will show you. That land was the land of Canaan. So he gives Abraham a land promise, a promise of a land, of a country. And then he says, I will make of you a great nation. He gives him a national promise. That's Israel. So not only a land promise, I'll give you land, Abraham, but I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then he gave him a spiritual promise that is to all people on earth. And that's his seed, that's Christ. He said, in you, or in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here's a spiritual problem. It is a threefold problem. Land, a nation, and a spiritual promise. And he gave those to Abraham. So notice now, he's told Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. But you know, Abraham's getting old. And so one day in a vision with the Lord, he's talking with the Lord, and he lets the Lord know, I just don't have any, I don't have any heirs. Let's go to Genesis 15, if you have your scripture available. This one's not on your chart. I'd like to read just a portion of scripture in Genesis 15 with you. Verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless. And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, to me you've given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if you be able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So God made this promise to Abram. It's not going to be this Eliezer, this steward of your house, this slave, this servant that you've got. That will not be the one to inherit all you have. It's going to be one that comes forth of your own bowels. So he promises Abraham a descendant. And of course he's referring to Isaac. Now, Abraham and Sarah lost, uh, lost faith in this promise eventually. Abraham is about 99 years old or near 100. Sarah is about 90. And, uh, you know, there still hadn't been a child yet. But right before that, they decide to take the matter into their own hands. And Sarah gives to Abraham her handmaid because Sarah's not been able to bear children. And you know the story how that Abraham with Hagar, this, this servant to Sarah, bore the child Ishmael, Abraham's son Ishmael. And, uh, of course, they have, they've completely ignored God's promise that, uh, you know, Sarah's going to have the child. It's not going to be this child of this bond woman, of this slave woman. Ishmael's born, and of course Abraham loves this boy. It's his descendant. But uh, God lets him know in a hurry, that's not going to be, that, that's just not going to be your heir. Sarah's going to have a child. He gives him a covenant of circumcision. I want, I want to read with you from Genesis 17. This, again, is not on your chart. But I want to look at circumcision for just a moment. It's very important to Abraham. It was a covenant made with him and with his seed. The Bible says in chapter 17, when Abram was 90, was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be you perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and ye shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made you. And I will make you exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are, you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, You shall keep my covenant, therefore, you and your seed after you in their generations." This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of your seed. He that is born in your house and he that is bought with money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. 
And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God made a covenant in Abraham's flesh and in the flesh of his descendants afterward. This promise, this seed promise that his people, uh, of course, would come from Abraham and he's made this promise and it's established with a covenant of circumcision. And so anyone that would be part of that covenant, any male, had to, had, to, had to be circumcised. And that was true of all Abraham's descendants. And that separated Abraham's descendants from every other human being on earth. And so God made this promise, this covenant with him. Sure enough, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, Isaac was born. He is the child of promise. And you remember the story that when Isaac was weaned one day, Ishmael and his mother began to laugh, began to laugh at Isaac. And Sarah decreed there that this child, this Ishmael, will not be heir with my son Isaac. She tells Abraham, send him away. And God reinforced that. And he sent, he sent Hagar and he sent Ishmael away. Isaac would be the heir. He would be the child of promise. Through whom Abraham's seed would be built into a nation and through whom the Messiah would come. And he gave that covenant of circumcision for that purpose. So now, if you'll notice the genealogy, Abraham begets Isaac. And Isaac, of course, begat Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And if uh, Genesis 35 and verse 10, I have it here in small print on your chart, if you can read it here. God said unto him, Thy name is... Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. When we read of Israel, we're reading of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons. Here they are listed for you on your chart, beginning with Reuben all the way down to Benjamin, who was the baby. 12 sons. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And through these boys and their descendants, God formed the nation of Israel. They all came from Abraham. He promised to make him a nation. He did. And so these 12 sons would produce that nation. You know the story of Joseph, how he was sold into uh, slavery down in Egypt by his brothers and how eventually he was lifted up out of prisoner, prison and became governor. Remember that there was a famine in the land of Canaan and and so uh, all of these boys and their wives and their children, eventually when, when Joseph made himself known to them, he told them to move down into Egypt. He sent wagons to haul them and their possessions down that he might care for them in Egypt and protect them through this famine. There were 75, 75 descendants of Abraham that went down into Egypt in the days of Joseph. Not a very large people at all. When they came out later under Moses, there would probably have been a, a city there the size of Houston, Texas. There were several million of them. They had multiplied that much down there in slavery when Moses led them out and they crossed the Red Sea. How do we know there's that many? There is a, there's a passage in Numbers chapter 1, I believe it's verse 45, 46. They took a census of the children of Israel, all the males, just the males, 20 years old and up, that were able to go to war. And they found out that there was 600 and, I believe it's 603,000, 
550. I may, I may have that wrong. It may be 604. It was right around over 600,000. These are just males 20 and up that are able to fight. It doesn't include any males 20 and up that can't fight, any males below 20. It includes no females whatsoever. If you just took a conservative number, like for every one of these males, there would be, three, say, four people altogether, and started multiplying that. I, I hope I've got this right. Let's see. 4045 is 20 carry 22. This would be 14. That would be 2,414,000 right there. Uh, if there were four altogether for just the males that were mentioned there. And that, that's conservative. There could be three to five million people when they crossed the Red Sea and headed to Mount Sinai. Now these people have got to have food, they've got to have water, they've got livestock that's got to be fed and watered. And you're looking at a city like Houston Metro marching through the wilderness and headed to Mount Sinai. They crossed the Red Sea, of course, and God destroyed the Egyptians and preserved them and brought them to Sinai, and there they camped for one year. For one year they stayed here at Sinai. At Sinai, three major things happened that we want to note. Number one, the law was given at Mount Sinai. Number two, they took the census. They numbered the people, like I talked about here in Numbers 1. And number three, they built the tabernacle, their system of worship, the Ark of the Covenant, the uh, table of showbread, the lampstand and all of that, the tent. All of that was designed and built there at Mount Sinai during that year before they packed up and headed toward the land of Canaan. Now they're on the back side. Look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19 with me. The Bible says, In the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai, for they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, Ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For the earth is mine, and ye shall be to me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words with that which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now when he promises here that if they would keep his covenant and obey his voice, he said, you're going to be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. He's saying you will be a peculiar people. Look at your opening text up at the top. He says that you are a peculiar people, whoever Peter's talking to here. Well, that's what God had told Israel. He chose them to be his special people. And he said, you'll be a peculiar treasure to me above all people. And he said, you'll be a kingdom of priests. Some translations will say a royal priesthood or kings and priests. He calls it here in Exodus a kingdom of priests. Peter called it a royal priesthood. Same thing over here, see. And then he says, you'll be to me a holy nation. Isn't that what Peter said in the text? That whoever he's talking to over here is a holy nation. You see, this has all been transferred from Israel being a 
peculiar people, a uh, holy nation, a uh, royal priesthood that's been transferred over to the church, see. Now the church is. But God promised Israel would be, but it was always conditional. They had to keep His covenant, and they had to obey His voice. And of course Israel did not do that, but He said, if you will do that, you're going to be a peculiar treasure to me, and you're going to be a, a, a kingdom of priests, and you're going to be a holy nation. But they had to do their part. God would keep His promise if they would obey Him. You know the history of Israel. Uh, that nation, of course, came out of Abraham, and here they are at Sinai, and I should have drawn the land of Canaan up here, and I'm going to do it right quick. Let me just get the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, this is the Dead Sea. And here's the Mediterranean out here with its curvature. And down here is Egypt. Sinai is way over here in Arabia. And when they leave Sinai, Moses leads them down here to the southern border, border of the land of Canaan to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they decide now that they will spy out the land here that God's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they're going to possess. And so they picked a man out of each of the twelve tribes and sent him into the land, and he was gone into that land for forty days. Remember when the spies came back, why ten of them brought the report that they just couldn't take this land. They said, yes, it's a great land. Actually, I want you to think about the land of Canaan here that God had given them. It had infrastructure already in place. Roads have been built. There are seven nations that dwell in it. They've already built roads. They have dug wells. They planted vineyards. They've cultivated fields. They have built cities. They are walled cities. The infrastructure is all in place for Israel. All they got to do is go in and take it. It would be like China conquering America today. They would get our infrastructure. They would get our water system, our electrical grids, our interstate highway system. They would get our cities, our skyscrapers. They would get our cultivated fields and our vineyards and orchards and our timber our oil reserves and our oil refineries and everything that we've built, our bridges, just all the infrastructure in America would be theirs if they came in and took us over. This is what Israel was taking, a land flowing with milk and honey. And all they had to do was go in and conquer these seven nations. But ten of the spies came back and said, it's a wonderful land. It flows with milk and honey. In other words, there's plenty there. But there's giants in that land, and we look like grasshoppers. And there's high-fenced cities there. We can't take the land. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, yes, we can. But the people listened to the ten, and they murmured and lost their faith. God said, all right, for every day that you spied the land out, 40 days, you're going to wander a year down here until your carcasses fall in this winter, in this wilderness. And anyone that was... Uh, 20 and above when you came out of Egypt. They're going to die off and they will not go into the land of Canaan. And so they wandered around down there for 40 years until that generation died. And Moses led them around through Ammon and Moab up here and on the east side of the Dead Sea. And they camped over here in the plains of Moab just across the river over here on the west bank was Jericho. And they would start there conquering that and and then conquer these seven nations. Moses was called up into a mountain, you remembered, and he got to view the promised land. He could probably see 50 miles across to the west, maybe 150 up and down, because he was taken to Mount Nebo to a peak called Pisgah, 
And there he viewed that land, and God buried him up there in an unknown grave. And then the leadership of his people fell to Joshua. That had been Moses' servant or his minister. And under Joshua then, when you read the book of Joshua, Israel went in and they conquered this land and they divided it up. If you had, for example, if you were out of the tribe of Judah, you would have had land down in here. And you would have had, say, a family farm down in that land, and that would have been passed down in your family. And uh, so they split it up by the 12 tribes. Some over here on the other side of the Jordan River took that land, and they scattered it out here and dwelled in and settled in the land. God put judges over them for a period of 450 years. Men like Gideon and Barak and Samson, uh, even a woman named Deborah ruled them as a judge there for a while. The period of Judges, if you've studied it, and you can study the book of Judges, is just a, it's a revolving cycle. They would, they would get peace like Joshua gave them. And then the people would sin, and they'd stay in sin a while, and God would get grieved with them, and He'd allow their enemies to come in and take them captive. And they would be taken captive or, or have their, uh, their, their crops and herds stolen and such things as that, and the people would cry out and want deliverance, and he would raise them up a judge, a deliverer, to, to conquer their enemy, and God would give them peace. Then they would sin. They'd get conquered. He'd raise another judge. They'd get deliverance and peace. They'd sin. They'd go back to being captive and all of that, and it's a revolving cycle of this for 450 years. So when you study the book of Judges, that's what you'll be reading. Remember, the last of the judges was Samuel. And uh, in the days of Samuel, God came to, God, uh, excuse me, uh, the people came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. And Samuel tried to tell them, no, you don't want a king. But they, they cried out for one anyway, yeah, we want a king. So God gave them a king. We call these the days of the United Kingdom. And I'll come to that United Kingdom here. I'll just put a UK here. In just a moment, and we'll talk about it. I want to go back under the law here and pick up something before we leave it. Uh, I want you to go back to uh, Deuteronomy. I really, I skipped Genesis 22, and I wanted to get that. Let's just go back to Genesis 22. Go back to Abraham for just a minute. Let me pick up on something. Verse 15 to 17, you have this on your chart, I believe. See if you do. You're 15 to 18. The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By, thy, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I'll bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. That promise was made the second time to Abraham after he offered Isaac there on the altar. And so God has made this promise of the seed, and we've talked about Isaac being that seed. I didn't want to leave that out. Back in Deuteronomy 5, when we were at Mount Sinai there, I want to read verses 1 to 3. Moses, before they go into the land of Canaan, reminds them of the law and the covenant that God made with them. 
Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep them and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Korob. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. I want you to notice that that covenant there made at Horeb was, was actually Mount Sinai. That's what Horeb is. Let me get this Bible out of our way here. Mount Sinai is Horeb. And he said, the Lord made a covenant with us at Horeb here. He made it not with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all alive here this day. So God had, had selected this nation to give his laws to. He made a covenant with them. He tells them, if you'll obey my voice, you'll be my people. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. And of course, the seed of Abraham, Jesus, is promised to Abraham that he'll produce descendants in number as stars and as the sand upon the seashore. What about us Gentiles? When he separated Abraham off and built him into the nation of Israel, what about everybody else? Let's look at Romans 2 for just a minute. Verse 14, what laws were we under? The Bible says there of, of us as Gentiles, for when the Gentiles which have not the law, this is Romans 2, 14 to 16, when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law or a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. When he pulled Abraham off and built him into a nation, God made a covenant with them and he gave them his laws. But he let us Gentiles kind of run our own course. He left us with no written law, no priesthood, no sacrificial system, no promises like this. We had nothing. The Gentiles had the law that was in their heart. They did by nature the things that were contained in the law. In other words, he left the rest of humanity under natural law. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, man has known right and wrong. He knows you don't go next door and sleep with your neighbor's wife. He knows you don't go take his spear. You don't go steal from him. We know by nature that certain things are wrong. Lying, stealing, adultery, murder, things like that. And so this was the law that the Gentiles were under. They didn't have written law. And of course, when they were are going to be judged, they'll be judged by that law. That's what he talks about there in Romans 2.14. When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their heart and their conscience the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Israel has a covenant and written laws and circumcision and such things, a priesthood and a sacrificial system. The Gentiles have none of that. And of course God's aim is to preserve this nation of Israel, to bring it along through time until such time as He can bring Abraham's seed and David's descendants through this lineage into this world to pay the debt for sin and to call both Jew and Gentile out of the world and reconcile them in one body which we call the church. That's his whole scheme. And to make these people, you and I, his chosen people.
That's the theme of the whole Bible. And a lot of the Old Testament, God is just dealing with this nation of Israel that are His people and preserving them until such time as Jesus can be brought into the world. As I said, He gives uh, Israel a priesthood system and a sacrificial system. Would you read with me there on your back from Exodus chapter 40, verse 12 to 15. God told Moses, Thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. Thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him that he may minister unto me in the priest office. Thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them with coats. And thou shalt anoint them as thou didst, didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. If you'll look on your chart there on the left side, you'll see the third son of Jacob, who is Levi. And I've drawn a line down from Levi because Moses and Aaron came out of the tribe of Levi. They are brothers. And God chose Aaron to be the first high priest. We're reading about it here. And he chose his sons to be the priest. Now, Aaron had four sons. Let's read Numbers there, chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. These also are the generations of Aaron and Moses in the day that the Lord spake with Moses in Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the priests which were anointed, whom he consecrated to minister in the priest office. And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. And Eleazar and Ithamar ministered in the priest office in the sight of Aaron their father. So if you look at Aaron's lineage there, to be a priest in Israel, you had to come out of the tribe of Levi, but specifically through the family of Aaron. You had to be one of Aaron's descendants. And Aaron lost two of his four boys, Nadab and Abihu. They had no descendants. And so he tells us here that Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's boys, his sons, were the priests. And their boys after them were priests. And then their sons after them were priests. And their sons after them were priests. It stayed in Aaron's family. Moses was the lawgiver, but none of his children could be priests. Only Aaron's. In other words, to set up a priesthood today in Israel, if they were to set the Old Testament priesthood up, they would have to be able to trace their genealogy back to Aaron out of the tribe of Levi. No one can do that today. And when we get down to the next study here, I'll show you where in 70 A.D. when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, God destroyed all efforts that they might make to set their priesthood back up and to set their temple service back up and their sacrificial system. He took, that, he took that ability out, that genealogical record, for them to trace back to Aaron. Israel has never had a priest since 70 A.D. They have never offered a legitimate sacrifice to God as they did under the law of Moses. They cannot because the priesthood is gone and they have no way to set it up again because God eventually got through with that system. That's what I'll show you in the next study. But I wanted you to see where he set it up and how in order to be a priest in Israel, you had to come from the family of Aaron specifically and out of the tribe of Levi. All right? 
Now I'd gotten you over so far in their history as he has set all this system up with them that the people now are crying out for a king along about in here after the period of the judges. So he gives them a king. He gives them a man named Saul out of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul becomes their first king and he reigned for 40 years. And then when Saul died, David took over as king and he reigned 40 years. And when David died, remember Solomon took the throne and he reigned 40 years. We call this the United Kingdom, each one of these men reigning 40 years. Remember when Solomon died, he had ruined the kingdom so much that the people were sick and tired of his, his rule because Solomon had done just exactly what Samuel and God had tried to warn the people. He was a tyrant. And uh, you know, kings, uh, kings are monarchs. They just do what they want. If Solomon saw your daughter and he wanted her in his harem, if he wanted her for a wife or a mistress, he took her. Solomon had 700 wives. He had 300 mistresses. I don't know why we think he's the wisest man to ever live. <laughs> he had a thousand women in his harem. That's not very wise. He couldn't get around and, and spend one night with them in three years, hardly. Just couldn't do it. Took him, took him nearly three years just to spend one evening with them. So he wouldn't have known those wives at all, and uh, they were just something that Solomon wanted. If he liked your son and he wished him to be a soldier, he took him. If he needed your son or daughter for a baker or for some other project, a skilled laborer, he just took them. Kings can do that. And that's what God tried to warn Israel about in the days of Samuel. You don't want a king. He will ruin you. And they thought, yes, Egypt's got a king. All these other nations have kings. We want a king. So he gave them kings. And Solomon, by the third one, had ruined them. And they were sick of him. So they came to, uh, to his son Rehoboam after Solomon died. He had a son named Rehoboam. And they said, Rehoboam, are you going to treat us like your father Solomon? Rehoboam said, my little finger is going to be thicker than my father's wrist. He chastised you with whips. I'll chastise you with scorpions. In other words, I'm going to be a lot tougher than, than dad was. So there was a rebellion. The kingdom then split. Ten of the tribes pulled away and formed a northern kingdom and took a man by the name of Jeroboam for their king. And two of the tribes formed a kingdom here in the south and took the name Judah. Now you've got Israel and Judah, a northern and a southern kingdom. And we call these the days of the divided kingdom. And now the nation is split just like America did during the Civil War. All this time, God is preserving Israel. Because remember, Abraham's seed, Jesus, has got to come out of this nation. And so in spite of the fact that they're divided, He takes care of them. And He preserves them. Now every king up here that ruled in the north was wicked. When you study the books of Kings and Chronicles, you'll read some of this history, even in Samuel. You'll read some of this history. Every king that ruled the northern ten tribes was evil, starting with Jeroboam down to the last. And they got so evil, ultimately, in 721 B.C., Assyria was the dominant world empire, and they came in and conquered the, the ten tribes. And uh, they scattered them out through countries that they had conquered, other, other peoples. You know, Assyria was a, was a nation that could conquer anyone they wanted, but they couldn't keep them conquered. 
So they figured out a, a way to do it. They would take parts of the population out of a country they'd conquered and scatter it out through other parts of their empire. Then they would bring in other people from other parts of the empire back into that nation from which they'd taken people. And those folks that were left would intermarry. And this broke the nationalistic spirit of those people. They would pollute their bloodline. It would be like China conquering America, let's say, and transporting a bunch of us around the world to different parts of the, of the world that they controlled, and then moving other peoples that they'd conquered into the United States and letting them intermarry with the remnant that was here. We have a nationalistic spirit about us. We are Americans. We have a distinct culture. They could break that culture down, see, and they could keep the people subdued better that way. And that's what they did to the ten tribes. So they deported part of them, took them away and uh, scattered them out into different areas they controlled. They brought heathen or Gentile peoples back in, and the remnant of the ten tribes married these Gentiles that had been brought in and produced a mixed race called the Samaritan. And that's why the Jews hated them. They were half-breed Israelites. They had polluted their bloodline. And so yet through all of this, God was preserving this people. So now this northern kingdom's greatly polluted. Their bloodline's messed up. Those in captivity still had a true bloodline. And uh, they would eventually be brought back out of that captivity of Babylon. As for the kingdom of Judah down here, God... God shielded them and protected them, but they got so wicked eventually. Babylon had conquered Assyria by this time, and in 606 B.C., God allowed Babylon to come in and, and conquer Judah and conquer Jerusalem, and ultimately they destroyed the temple that Solomon had built. And in the days of, da of, of uh, Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, both Daniel and Ezekiel were carried away captive to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And when you read Daniel's writings and Ezekiel's writings, they are in captivity in Babylon when they have all those visions and dreams and write those things. We've got to understand that part. Eventually, the Medes and the Persians came together and formed an empire uh, strong enough to overthrow Babylon, and they overthrew them in 536 B.C., Jeremiah had told uh, Judah here that in captivity in Babylon, he said, you'll be down there 70 years. Just be patient. Go ahead and build houses. Take your wife. Raise a family. If you get opportunities, start your business. Just go ahead. Be productive and wait this thing out. In 70 years, I'll bring you back into this land, and you can rebuild and settle back in the land. So they stayed in Babylon 70 years till the Medes and Persians conquered uh, the Babylonians in 536. And when they did, they released the Jews out of captivity and let them go back under Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and rebuild their city and walls and their temple ultimately and set their worship back up. And Israel again was united. And uh, God preserved them. They never again asked for a king. They finally learned their lesson. God was always their king, you know, because he ruled them in righteousness. And so God just kept preserving uh, this nation and bringing it on through. And ultimately with the view toward bringing Jesus, of course, out of it. That's his whole plan. Now let's pick, pick some scripture here and we'll close here in just a moment. Um, 
Genesis, Galatians 3.16. The Bible says that when the fullness of the time was come, I'm sorry, yeah, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So it was to Abraham and his seed these promises had been made. But he said he didn't say seeds like there were many. He said uh, there was one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. When, when God made this promise to Abraham and his seed, he had in mind Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Now in Matthew 1, we have the genealogy of Christ. We have it again in Luke chapter 3. And I don't know how many of you get tired of reading that so-and-so begat so-and-so. And you think, man, why, why is that in my Bible? That is so boring. Folks, that is so essential. Jesus had to come out of the lineage of Abraham. And he had to come through the house of David in order to be the Messiah and the King. And we had to have a way to establish that before these records were ever destroyed. We have to be able to prove Jesus' lineage. Look here on your chart now. I charted this out. When you read Matthew 1, it's interesting. Matthew 1 and 1 says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when you look at these names I put here in small print, I put Abraham in red and David in red. And when you read Matthew... You read that Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac Jacob, and Jacob Judas, or Judah, and then Pharaohs, and Esram, and Aram, and Amenadab, Naasson, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, uh, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abiah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Ozias, Jotham, uh, Achaz, Ezekias, Manassas, Ammon, Josias, Jeconias, that would have been about the time of the captivity. Manassas, Ammon, uh, Josias, Jeconias, I got that. Salathiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Sadok, Achim, Eliad, Eleazar, Matthan, Jacob, Joseph, Mary, uh, who was Mary's husband, of whom was born Jesus Christ. There's Matthew's genealogy. It takes you back through David to Abraham, and that's very important. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the offspring of David. He had to be. That's where he gets his kingly authorities through David to reign over God's people. See? So these genealogies are important. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is Scripture. In Luke, Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam. He goes past Abraham and takes Jesus' lineage then all the way back to Adam and traces him through him, see back through Shem and Noah, and then on back, of course, to Adam. So when you look at Luke 1 and Luke 3, you get the genealogy of Christ. There's a scripture I don't have here in Galatians 4 and 4, and here's what it says. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the fullness of the time was come, at just the right time in history, God sent Jesus to this earth. It was, a, it was perfect in God's sight, but you know, looking at it as a human being, when you study history, it was good. To, the timing when Jesus got here was good too. Let me tell you why. The, the Greek language had come along, 
And now the world has a language that's universal in that first century. When the gospel was being spread, Greek was spoken about everywhere around the Roman world. Not everybody knew Greek, but most people did. And if you were educated and all, you knew Greek. So there was a, a language that was common for the spreading of the gospel when Jesus came. That had never been the case. There used to be pirates out on the Mediterranean out here. It was not very safe to travel these seas between Palestine and Greece or Italy up in here. Uh, from Egypt to Rome would have been a very dangerous trip. Piracy everywhere. Rome had come in and, and just cleaned the Mediterranean of all of its pirates and made a ship travel a whole lot safer. Rome had come in and built great roads. The road systems, the old trade routes and up here through Asia Minor over, to, uh, over into Greece and from Greece on over into Rome. There were wonderful roads that were built that helped travel, that helped the gospel spread a whole lot easier. And so all around this Mediterranean world in here, you see, there was, there was a distinct culture and language and easy shipping and ship travel and great roads when the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. And the whole thing that God had done up to this point, beloved, was one, one thing. Pick Abraham off out of all humanity. Call him out just like he will call you and I out. He called him out and built unto him a great nation and preserved that nation until such time as he could bring Jesus into the world. When Jesus got here, the Jews were, had all violated the law that they had, were under, and the Gentiles had, had violated their law. All were guilty. And God's whole scheme then was to have Jesus come into this world and pay the sin debt of both Jew and Gentile and uh, call, out of, call out of humanity Jew or Gentile unto Him. Just like He called Abraham off and built his posterity into a nation, his plan is to call humanity out one by one and build us into a nation, a holy nation that he calls the church and to make us his people whether we are Jew or Gentile. He doesn't care because these are no longer his chosen people. The church is. Next week when we pick this up, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about who we are, the church, the house of God, Abraham's seed, spiritual Jews, we are the Israel of God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are the people of God. And this has been God's plan all along. It never was to keep a people back here separated from all humanity and only make them His special people, but to, to devise a plan where He could make all humanity into His people that wanted to be. This is the whole plan of the Bible. I just want you to see it unfold. Who are the chosen people of God? We'll, we'll take that up next week and talk about it further. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.